Hey guys, welcome to uh, to my church. Um, my name is Ed Griffinag, and I'm one of the pastors here on staff. Uh, as we're getting started, actually, before we get started, let me pray for us real quick, and and then we'll get going. Lord, we love you today. We we just thank you so much for the opportunity to be here, to be with you, to be with our friends. Uh, that that last song, "Great Are You, Lord," and Lord, I, my prayer is that. Uh, that we will always just praise your name, that we'll be on our knees praising your name. Lord, I ask you this morning to, to be here in this season uh, that we're going through at my church, that you'll be with us. Lord, I pray that you would give me your words to speak, that, uh, that hearts and minds will be changed, that uh, we will just always constantly uh, keep our hearts, keep our eyes, keep our minds focused on, uh, focused on you. In Jesus' name, amen. So, hey, this morning um, we are going to be in the book of Philippians, uh, the chapter 1. Uh, we're going to have it up on the screen. And actually, I want to make sure that we don't always do this, but if you don't have, because I'm going to ask you to do something with this today, if you don't have a worship guide, would you raise your hand and we're going we're to get one too. You can have mine. Um, now, hopefully, I'll remember the passage that we're going to be in. Um, anyway, we're going to be in the book of Philippians, Philippians is about 11 books into the New Testament. It's sandwiched right in between Ephesians, the book of Ephesians, and the book of Colossians. And Philippians was written by the Apostle Paul. It was written in the mid-60s, not the 1960s, in the mid-060s, I guess, in the mid-60s, about 30 or so years uh, uh, after, the, after the, the resurrection and Christ's ascension. And it, and it is written, Paul probably wrote it, towards the latter part of his imprisonment in Rome and the, the, the church at Philippi, the, the Philippian church, they sent a guy named Epaphroditus to Paul with a gift. And, and Paul sent him back with a thank you for the gift, with a letter, and that letter is what we have in the New Testament in the book of Philippians. And that letter was sort of a, uh, a, written to them to ease some anxieties that they had about him being in prison. So that gives you a little context of this book. And as we get started, I want us to learn something about when, when we pick up this Bible and we read it, I want us to sort of learn um, a few things. When I look at a passage, I'm, I'm going to read it over and over and over and over again. And a lot of times I'm looking, I'm trying to figure out what, what is that passage, 35,000 foot view, what is that passage kind of about? And one of the things that I found a, a, a pretty good habit is to circle the words or phrases that are repeated in a passage because a lot of times they'll, they'll, the, the, the overarching principle or the overarching meaning will just kind of jump off the page and it'll, it'll almost say to you, here's what this passage is about. And so today we're going to look in, at Philippians 1 uh, verses 12 through 18 and I want to share with you all what I think this passage was all about when Paul wrote that letter to the church at Philippi. We, we've got we've to look and say what did Paul intend to convey to them and what is it that those original recipients, what, what is it that they, that they heard. But then we also need to pull out of the text, out of the Bible, what are the principles that are there? How does that apply to me and you? And it's cool to understand what, what, what it was, what it what Paul intended to convey and what the, the church at Philippi heard. 
But how does that apply to me and you today in 2018? In particular, in this passage, how does that apply to this season of life that my church is in right now? Everybody's got to worship God, right? All right. So let me read. I want to read you all this passage, and then we're going to, run, we're going to go right back through it, and I'm going to have some things circled, and I want you all to grab a pen from the front of the, the seat back in front of you. I want you all to circle. We're going to underline two things, but I want you all to circle these things too. We're going to come back to it. So this is starting in verse 12. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. So jump back up to verse 12, look in your worship guide, and I want you to do a couple things. I want you to underline what has happened to me. And then I want you to circle in verse 12, circle advance the gospel. I'm going to run through this pretty quick. In verse 13, circle for Christ. In verse 14, circle speak the word. In verse 15, circle preach Christ. In verse 16, circle for the defense of the gospel. 17, circle proclaim Christ. And then in 18, circle Christ is proclaimed and underline I rejoice. And as we're walking through this and having this conversation this morning, I really want you to to glance down every now and again at what you've circled there and even pray about it, pray on it, look at it and read it as we're walking through this conversation. So just, uh, just a few short months. Did you all get all of that? Okay, that was underwhelming, but okay. Um, just a, sh- a few short months ago, um, I called Jeff to talk to him about something that was going on in my life at work. Not anything like crazy cataclysmic, but something that was going on that wasn't the greatest thing in the world, but it, you know, it wasn't the end of the world either. But it was something that was happening. And we talked, we chatted for, for a little bit. And then when we hung up, I don't know, 30, 45 seconds later, Jeff called me back. And he asked if me and Susan could have lunch the next day. This was uh, the next day uh, with him and Christy at Wasabi. I love me some Wasabi. So it, it wasn't hard for us to land and have lunch at Wasabi. Anyway, um, when we got there, we sat down in a booth in the way back left side of Wasabi. And Jeff and Christy shared with us uh, where God was leading them. And understand that I said where God was leading them. And God was leading them to Lynchburg. And, and, and look, Jeff's one of my very best friends. So we sat there, and Christy and Susan in the last six years have become very, very tight. So we're sitting there in Wasabi in a booth at lunchtime, which is a pretty crowded place, and, the four, and we wept. And, and I'm sure those people are looking like, who are these freaks in this booth over there, all four of them crying like a bunch of babies? 
So right there, we're sitting there, and we wept. And, and one of the things that I remember Jeff kept telling me as in that conversation, he, he just kept saying that the church can't be about the guy. The church can't be about the pastor. The church can't be about the rock star worship pastor. The, the church can't be about the lead pastor. It's just got to be about Jesus Christ and the advance of the gospel and about the advance of the kingdom. And look, you may and you probably are still sad. I am. Nobody can sit and tell any of it. You can't tell somebody how to feel. Nobody's fixing to tell me how to feel. I'm going to feel sad when I feel sad. So that's not what what this is. I'm going to miss my friend, my friends, and Susan is too. And today you may be going through one of the toughest times of life. You may have just found out that you have cancer and you don't know what the future looks like for you and your family. Maybe you just lost your job and you, don't, you, you can't even see how God can end up providing for you the finances that you're going to need to go on. Perhaps you're a student and your parents just told you that, that they're going to get divorced and you don't even know what to do with that kind of news. Maybe a family member just passed away and you almost can't even figure out how am I going to even wake up tomorrow morning and, and go on. Whatever it is that we go through, whatever it is, I want you to know that God provides hope in that. God wants to work in us and through us in the midst of the pain. And, and you've got to know that, that the Christian life can be and is often, it's bittersweet. It's bitter when you experience suffering or if we experience loss. Trials and tragedies, they're, they're awful. The junk that happens to us a lot of times, it's awful. Nobody wakes up and says, give me some suffering. I need some hardship today. I mean, that's just not what we do. But also the Christian life is sweet. And it's sweet in the sense that our suffering, our pain, our adversity, it's never, ever wasted on God. He works His purposes. Even in the middle of our pain, He works His purposes. In fact, God, just all the time, He does some of His best work in and through me and you right when we're in the middle of some personal crisis. And Paul, in Philippians and in, in, in other of, others of his writings, he shares with us a lot of his personal experiences and, and, he, and he shares that, that our perspective in the midst of that pain makes all the difference in the world. And you'll see, here's what you see in Paul. You'll see that the question uh, that he asks himself, it's, it's not, is what's happening fair? No, he asks the question, is what's happening accomplishing something for God? Is it furthering God's purposes in the world. And if you and I, and I put myself at the front of this line, if you and I can figure out how to land on and, and, and reflect on that question, what we will absolutely discover is that we can have our best witness in our worst circumstances. We can have our best witness often in our worst circumstances. So in, in, in verses 12 through 18 in Philippians 1, Paul shares with us two, there's two realities about adversity that I, want to sh- that I want to talk about this morning that Paul shares with us. And first, we're going to have it up on the screen. It's in your worship guide. Um, the first one is adversity always advances God's kingdom. 
It always, 100% of the time, adversity advances God's kingdom. And Paul is going to challenge us today and always to view the adversity that happens in our lives, the sadness, the adversity, the trials, whatever those may be, we want to view those in light of, the, of its contribution to the kingdom. And by the way, it's not, it's not an if. It's not an if something's going to happen. It's a when something's going to happen. We have been in the book of James for a few weeks, and the book of James opens up verse, uh, verse 2 of chapter 1 right out of the chute. James says, and he affirms this thought, he says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials. He doesn't say count it all joy if. He says count it all joy for joy when you meet trials of various kinds. So again, Paul challenges us to view the things that happen to us in light of what is it going to contribute to his kingdom. And in doing this, y'all hear this one. In doing this, he insists, Paul insists that adversity it doesn't somehow put the gospel in gridlock. The things that are happening to me in my life, they don't somehow put the gospel in gridlock. It doesn't somehow put Jesus on hold, on standby or something. It, it doesn't remove the things that are happening to me. It doesn't somehow remove God off of, off of his throne, and it doesn't somehow stop the gospel. In fact, it advances the gospel. It, it furthers God's kingdom. And he puts it like this in verses uh, 12 and 13. He says, I want, yeah, he says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is what? My imprisonment is for Christ. And Paul explains what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. Well, what is he talking about? What is, what, 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 what is this, what happened to me? What are Paul's specific circumstances that he writes this about? And he's serving a prison sentence in, in Rome, in a Roman prison. And he's in, in the custody of the imperial guard. And the imperial guard are these elite. I want to explain to you kind of what they are, what the imperial guard was. They're an elite group of men, it's Caesar's elite troops, and they're in his palace, and they're specialized, they're handpicked, they're a military group, they were his own personal bodyguards, they were strong and courageous and brilliant, sophisticated young men, almost like a hybrid of a West Point graduate secret service dude, kind of in, in one, they served in this duty station, they served 12-year stints as a member of the Imperial Guard. They guarded uh, people, prisoners like Paul, who had appealed to Caesar. They were there again for 12 years, and after that 12 years that they served there, they always transitioned off into some kind of influential career. Now think about this. These are the guards in the prison. 12 years, they, they, they would transition off. Uh, some of them went to, to command, to be a commanding general of of, of a huge unit of troops. Others of them went into public office. A lot of them ended up being senators or ambassadors to other countries. Others of them uh, uh, advanced to the, to the top rungs of business, to the top rungs of industry. As a, as a group, they were the movers and the shakers of the future in Rome. They were the opinion leaders and the kingmakers of the next generation. 
They were a powerful, strategic, strategically placed group of young men. And if you wanted to influence the Roman Empire, that would be the logical, obvious place to start. And every day, Paul would probably wake up and grin to himself because for two years, for two years, one of them was chained ankle to ankle to Paul. Think about that. He had to stay within four feet of Paul every day. Some think 24 hours a day he was chained to an imperial guard, for sure 12 hours a day. He wasn't chained to them. They were chained to him. You got that? He wasn't chained to them. They were chained to him. And you, you just almost have to think that they're, every day they're probably thinking, oh, my gosh, would this dude shut up about this Jesus guy? <laughs> every day, all day long, they're chained to him. Literally, Paul had a captive audience with whom he could share Christ. Could and did, I'm sure, over and over. That led to a chain reaction that saw Jesus just swipe a path across Rome. It's one of the major ways that the gospel spread in Rome and then to the rest of the world. So Paul's imprisonment in a Roman prison, Paul's imprisonment served to advance the gospel. That word advance, that in the Greek, that word advance is like a nautical, uh, it's like a nautical term that means to make headway in spite of blows. It's a it even is almost like the, the word that is used. It speaks of driving forward like in a military way, like, a, like troops advancing through new territory. They move ahead and they drive forward. So even though this imprisonment, Paul's imprisonment, it seemed like on the surface it would seem like a setback. I don't imagine Roman prisons were just like a, a, a cakewalk. And so it seems like a setback but it actually served to advance the gospel among the folks in Rome. God will take this change in the life of my church and he will advance the gospel. He will. That is what he does. He is in the gospel advancing business. We can't stop that. I just want to get on the train with him and ride along somehow. That's, that's all of us. That is what we should want. In God's sovereignty, he ordained Paul's imprisonment. He put his stamp of approval on Paul's imprisonment in Rome just for nothing? No, he did that so that a ton of people would hear the gospel that otherwise would not have heard the gospel. On top of that, a lot of them are these muckety-muck, big, you know, big, big guys out in society, influential people in the future. They have a gigantic impact for God. So although God closes a prison door behind Paul, he opens a new door for the gospel. He closes a door and then he opens a door. He closes a door and then he opens a door for the gospel. You got Jesus is Lord even in prison. He has his 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 people behind bars so they can spread the gospel. Paul cares more about the progress of the kingdom than his own problems. He's confident that God is always at work, and, and, and he believes that you and I can have our best witness in our worst circumstances. So in, in much the same way, God uses our painful circumstances to advance the gospel. You may not like your job. You may not like your school. 
You may not like your neighborhood. You may not even like your own family. I don't know. But God has us chained to people that need to hear about Jesus. He does. It may be. You may, you may not like your job, but have you ever thought that God has ordained where you are, where you're working, at this particular moment in history, because the dude in the cubicle sitting next to you that you may not even like, he needs to hear about Jesus. Have you ever thought that you're a student and you're in school and you may be in that school because somebody in that school needs to hear about Jesus? You may, God may have ordained that you bought a house in a particular neighborhood at a particular time because the family next door needs to hear about Jesus. God takes all of those things, stirs them up in a pot because it's what he does and that's the way that he advances his kingdom. Again, is it sad that the Murphys are are moving? And their decision was made through prayer. Heartfelt, deep, lengthy prayer. Through fasting. Through the the wisdom or the, the guidance and the wisdom of godly men and women that they sought advice from. So, so is it sad? Of course, of, of course it's sad. But you know what? God doesn't make mistakes and things don't happen randomly. He has a plan and he is advancing his kingdom. Is he going to advance the gospel in Lynchburg, Virginia through Jeff and Christy and Allie and Ashley and J.D.? Is that going to happen 500 miles, 500 miles, five, 600 miles from here? Is he going to advance the kingdom in Lynchburg? Of course he is. Why is he going to do that? Because that is what he does. In the same light, is he going to advance the kingdom, the gospel in Columbus, Georgia, through the ministries and through y'all, through the people in much? Of course he is. Because why? Because that is what he does. And, And adversity, sadness, trials, whatever those may be, they're going to come sooner or later. And most of the time, we don't get, to, to, we don't get a vote on, on whether it's going to happen to us or not. And I, hate, and I, I say I hate to break this to you because I'm looking, I'm talking to the man in the mirror. But it's always we're in, in one of three situations. Either we're just coming out of a trial or we're in the middle of a trial or we're fixing to go in, into one and we don't even know it yet. That is the way it is on this side, on this side of heaven. So you've got to train yourself, and I've got to train myself to see every tragedy, to see every, every pain, to see every adversity as a God-ordained opportunity to do what? To advance the gospel. You may lose a loved one, but God can use that tragedy to open up the door of some, for somebody that needs to hear the good news. On a smaller scale, you may go and you may get cut from a team, or you may not get in the college that you really wanted to attend, but God may open the door to reach students that he never would have reached because you are there at that, at that moment. So the question, again, that question is not, is what's happening fair? No, 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 no. The question is, is what's happening accomplishing something for God? Is what's happening being useful somehow to God? Is it furthering his purposes in the world? And Paul explains in verse 14, in Philippians 1 and verse 14, Another way that he used his imprisonment, he says this, 
verse 14 says, And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, they became confident by Paul's imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Paul's prison sentence resulted in greater boldness among the Roman Christians. Rather than flying under the radar, those believers felt inspired by Paul's courage. So they're standing up boldly all of a sudden for Christ, and they're proclaiming him as they never had before. And apparently they figure, this dude is doing it, he's in jail, I'm free. Surely I ought to be able to do that. For me personally, when I hear, literally personally hear about brothers and sisters in places like the Sudan or North Korea or China or where do you, China, the, the, the Christianity is growing in China by leaps and bounds in the midst of ridiculous persecution. And when I hear, when I personally, when I hear about that and people are boldly sharing Christ, I get so fired up. I just want to go run out in the streets and start screaming about Jesus because that's what, it's contagious and so our commitment to the gospel in the difficult circumstances, it is very contagious. If you're a soldier and you're on post and you want to have a Bible study or a small group and somebody else sees that, so another, another soldier sees that, the chances are one of them, they're going to want to do that. And if you're a student and, and you want to have a, a prayer time around the flagpole, there's going to be students in your school or in other schools that are going to hear about that and they're going to want to do the same things. You can have a powerful witness because God encourages us to proclaim Christ by paying attention to the witness of other believers. And it's not always easy. I'm not saying that. It's not always easy. But you can have your best witness in your worst circumstances. A second reality of adversity is that it reveals our priorities. When we start getting hammered about anything, it will reveal our priorities. In, in, in the midst of the stuff that's going on, in the midst of the junk maybe in our lives, you will find out what is, is important to you. I promise you. You will find out what is important to you. And, and it's a gut check. And in these verses, 15, 16, and 17, Paul's true, his true passion and his priorities, they kind of reveal themselves. So starting in verse, verse 15, some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. If you read through those verses carefully, you ought to be thinking it ain't bad enough Paul's in prison. But now he's got these, these people that say they're Christians, these Christians, these pastors, that, that are starting to rub salt in Paul's wound, his wounds, who are these guys? And, and here's the reality, these guys that Paul's talking about here. They aren't false teachers, they're selfish teachers. Paul is clear, these people are preaching Christ. It's black and white in the text. They are preaching Christ, but they're preaching Christ out of envy and rivalry and selfish ambition. And that word translated selfish ambition, it's like, it's like a selfish worker that all he does is go to work for the paycheck. It's like a politician, a self-seeking politician that will do anything he's got to do to, 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 to win an office. They're focused on self-promotion. They're petty. They're territorial. They're not anti-Christ, though. They're anti-Paul. And fortunately, Paul could always fall back on the preachers that 
that, that preach the gospel out of goodwill. Those guys recognize that God has placed Paul exactly where he wanted him. That's in your worship guide. God has placed Paul exactly where he wanted him. And that word in verse 16 that is translated put here, it carries the sense of being intentionally, providentially, and that word providentially just means God in God's sovereignty, that, that it's in God's wisdom that this happened. So that word put, put here is, is, it carries the sense that it's in, he's intentionally, providentially put somewhere for a purpose. It didn't happen randomly. God is not a God of chaos. He's not a God of randomness. He's a God of intention and purpose. And in other words, those, those, those good pastors, they knew that God had assigned Paul to those chains that he, that he was chained to an imperial guard. Well, why did he do that? Because he knew that Paul was not going to shut up talking about Jesus to the guy that he was chained to. He was defending the gospel at the highest level in the Roman, uh, in the Roman Empire. So how does Paul... How does Paul respond to these two types of of pastors, of preachers? In verse 18, he finishes this passage up, and he closes with some crazy words. He says, What then? What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, and that it's almost like in fakeness or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. And that phrase, what then, is almost like, okay, okay, I get it. And the question refers back to those three verses. Here's what Paul is saying. He's saying, all I know is the gospel's being proclaimed. It's advancing. All I know is folks are getting saved. People that don't know the Lord, they're finding out about the Lord. People are finding their way back to God. And Paul says, I'm stoked. Paul says, I rejoice. He says, believe it or not, I'd rather folks preach Christ with impure motives than not preach him at all. I'd rather be in jail and have somebody pushing salt into my wounds and preach Christ than for Christ not to be preached at all. Paul just, he reeks of this attitude because he is consumed with Jesus. He says in Romans, in Romans 1.16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel. He lives his whole life for Jesus. Everything about Jesus permeates everything about Paul, and he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. At the end of the day, he's not concerned with his reputation. He's not concerned with his ministry. He's not concerned with his happiness. Paul wants the success of the gospel. He aches. It just permeates all of his writing. He aches for the advance of the gospel. For me and you, all kind of issues are, are vying for our attention. Discrimination, media bias, racism, abortion, injustices out in the world. They, they're, they're screaming at us all over the place, and they're important issues. I'm not saying that they're not important issues. The danger in that, though, is that Jesus gets marginalized somehow and pushed a little off to the side, and it's been happening in the Protestant church for years. But let me tell you, when Jesus Christ is preached by gospel-focused people, God does stuff. When Jesus is in the center, he changes the culture. When Jesus is in the center, he changes society. 
He did it in a pagan Roman society with a dude in chains in a Roman prison. The key is for me and you to keep to keep laser focused on the bullseye, to keep laser focused on Jesus. Life doesn't revolve around whoever dies with the most toys wins. And it even doesn't revolve around raising the perfect family and making a lot of money or being successful in your job. Clearly, I'm not saying those are not important. But life revolves around the gospel of Jesus Christ and his effect, not my effect, or his effect on a lost and dying world. And for Paul, the bullseye was Jesus. And in that gospel, what does Paul say at the end? In that I will rejoice. So the other night, my good friend Doug's wife, Sherry, texted me and Susan in a sweet, encouraging kind of text message about being called to lead my church. And I texted her back this long message, shocker, that I was a little verbose in the message. But I said, look, I said, it's so weird, and it is, and this may be what's in your head right now. It's so weird that I have this sadness that's real, that's not fake, this sadness that my friends are moving to Lynchburg. But I also have this excitement and this anticipation because the future of this church, because of, of y'all what, sitting there, the future is crazy bright. And so I have both these things that seem to be dichotomous. They're, they're like in my head and they're in my heart living at the same time. This text message was about this long, by the way. And Sherry is the, you don't know her, but Sherry is like the master at stating the obvious. And after this long epistle that I text text messaged her, this is what she texted me back. And I wish I had a screenshot it and put it up on screen. It said, um, dot, 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 yeah, we call that bittersweet, Ed. (laughs) And, And, you know, that's the feeling. Um, that is, and it's real. That is a real feeling. A real feeling. And Paul said in verse 12, "What has happened to me has really served to do what? To advance the gospel." So we got to ask: Is what's happening accomplishing something for God? Verse 16 says, "Some preach Christ out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel." Just like this, you got to know that God has placed us here. God has placed us exactly where God wants us to be. Susan and I were, were talking a few days after we had lunch with Jeff and Christy at Wasabi. I love me some Wasabi. That's good stuff. And she was, she was asking me and struggling through, how do we know what God wants? And I'm thinking, I've kind of been a pastor for 24 hours. And I'm thinking, that's a gigantic question. How do we know? what God wants. Huge question. And the big picture in my little simple mind is he wants to grow the kingdom until he comes back. He's coming back and he wants to grow the kingdom until he comes back. We get to play a role in that part of it. Getting back down in the weeds of our conversation, and let me tell you, over the last few months, there have been dozens and dozens and dozens of little God winks. Jeffrey Heman doing what he just did, what he said in the worship the bass player, that, I didn't know he was going to do that. What a God wing. Man, that was awesome, his story, because people's stories are, are incredible. So in our life, and in Jeff and Christie's, because we've talked so much, little God winks, little God moments, and for us, none of them have been huge, lightning, striking, 
gigantic big deals, but multiple little things. So back to how do, you, how do we know what God wants is what Susan asked. And I was sitting in my chair in my great room, and I was reading an article about, um, about big faith, about recognizing doors that are open and recognizing doors that are closed, um, and trying to stay inside of, of God's will, you know, all of those kinds of trying to how to be obedient and how to listen to what God is saying. And I'm reading this article. There's about 20 passages on the screen in front of me. Susan's on the couch. Her Bible's on the table next to her. And so I, I said, look at such and I don't even remember what the passages were, but I said, look up such and such. So she grabs her Bible and she, she looks it up and then she does this and it's highlighted in her Bible. I said, all right, look up such and such. She looks it up, and she went like this, and it's highlighted in her Bible. And I said, look at such and such. All, these are all different books in the Bible, too. She reads it. She does this. It's highlighted. Five passages in a row about being obedient, recognizing doors, trying to discern what God wants for our lives. Five in a row, and then she just went, I get it. And she put her Bible down. So dozens of little things, and I say little, that's not little. It was almost like whenever five years ago when she was reading that passage and God highlighted it, it was for last week. Think about that because that's what he does. That's what he does. We got to be discerning enough to see it, but that's what he does. So we started this off today talking about what this passage means, what's important, what's in the bullseye. Y'all look at your worship guide. What's important is circled, and what's important is underlined. What's circled in your worship guide is advance the gospel for Christ. Speak the word, preach Christ, the gospel, proclaim Christ. Christ is proclaimed, and what's underlined, what's underlined? Y'all read what's underlined. What has happened to me... What does Paul say? What's the last words Paul says in this passage? I rejoice. What has happened to me advances the gospel, and I rejoice. Look, man, this church was birthed because my friend had a burning desire to lead people to the foot of the cross and into a saving relationship with Jesus Christ. This is not a hard thing. This church was birthed because Jeff and Christy had a burning desire to lead people to the cross and into a relationship with Christ. Can I tell you something? I do too. I do. I, I wake up every day thinking about that. We need to be weeping for lost people. We need to be doing what we can do every day to lead people. People are dying lost. And if they die lost, they're going to hell. I don't want nobody to go to hell. You, you, you don't either. I want to lead people to the cross. The mission of this church, helping people find their way back to God, not a new mission. That was the mission when Paul wrote what he wrote. Y'all, we get that. The mission hasn't changed. The passion hasn't changed. None of that changes uh, when Jeff and Christy move to Lynchburg. The reality is we're sad, but God is still on the throne. We are sad, but the gospel is going to advance. Christy said it so well last week. When she said, for her and Jeff, she said, it's like giving up your baby for adoption. 
and you wouldn't do that unless you thought it was best for the baby at that moment. Y'all, Jeff and Christy are turning this baby over to us. The church is a living, breathing organism, and we got to take care of it. We got to nurture it. We got to help it to grow. We got to help it to bloom. We got to help it to mature. And, and the church is y'all and me. We got to help it to grow and mature. We got to allow it to serve folks. We got to allow it to go out into the city and serve. We got to allow it to go to Africa and serve. We got to allow it to go to India and serve. We got to make it into a machine that people come into the door and they're sent out on a mission as a disciple. We got to be a machine that makes disciples and we got to beg God every day to allow us to play a role in advancing his kingdom. And then we just got to get on our knees and thank him and praise him when he does just that. All I can say, really, all I can say is what Paul said. He said, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. That's what we do. Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Y'all pray with me. Lord. We love you so much today. We just praise you for what you do. We praise you for what you are going to do. And Lord, we praise you for what you're going to do in Lynchburg, Virginia. We praise you for what you're going to do in Columbus, Georgia. Lord, we praise you for what you've done in the body and in the, and in the life of this church in the last nine years. Lord, we thank you. Uh, really, we thank you that you gave Jeff and Christy Murphy the vision and the passion and the opportunity, because the opportunity was yours to give them, an opportunity to preach your gospel and play a role in advancing your kingdom in Columbus, Georgia. Lord, thank you for that. We are all sitting here today because you put that vision in them, Lord, and we thank you for it. And we look forward, Lord, with, with crazy anticipation of what you are going to do in the future in the life of the people in this church, because this church is not this building, Lord. This, this church is the people that are sitting here today. Lord, and you are stirring hearts and you're stirring minds as just as we sit here to grow your kingdom because that is what you do. So, Lord, we thank you and we love you in Jesus' name.